G'day folks, welcome to the 152nd episode of the Ubuntu Security Podcast. I'm Alex Murray. This week we've got the first of a three-part series that we're going to look at into hardening Ubuntu systems. Camilla has been busy preparing that and we will bring you the other two parts over the next uh, few weeks as well. Plus, we're going to do the usual roundup of security fixes that have gone into the supported Ubuntu releases in the past week, and it has been a big week for security fixes as well. Uh, we've got uh, some pretty decent updates for the kernel, uh, for Firefox, uh, for Redis, and others as well. So yeah, let's just get straight into that. So up first, we had an update for HA proxy, the high availability proxy. This is for Ubuntu releases 20.04 long-term support and 21.10, the Impish Indri, which is the current uh, standard support release. Uh, this was for a single CVE. This was a CPU-based denial of service that could be triggered through a set cookie 2 header. Essentially, uh, this is, uh, well, now deemed an obsolete HTTP response header that uh, so is used to send cookies from the server to the user. Uh, now you just use the set cookie header. Uh, and yeah, so in this case, there was a possible infinite loop that could be triggered when parsing the responses that contained that header. That has been fixed as well. I've had an update for PHP for Ubuntu releases 18.04 long-term support, 20.04 long-term support, and 21.10. Uh, this is six different CVEs were rolled into this. And actually, I talked about these in uh, episode 150 when we talked about that for uh, the other releases. So yeah, go back and check that out if you want to know more details on that one. We had an update as well for Containerd. Uh, one CVE for Ubuntu releases 18.04 long-term support, 20.04 long-term support, and 21.10 as well. In this case, uh, it's a vulnerability that could allow uh, a malicious uh, container image author to potentially read arbitrary files from the host file system. Effectively, they could then get uh, read-only access to copies of those files uh, if they could craft their container image in such a way. So if you are using uh, untrusted container images, you are now a little bit safer. After that was an update for Firefox. Uh, this contained two high-priority CVEs. Uh, Mozilla themselves rated them with a critical impact. Uh, that's because both of these, as used after free, uh, their memory corruption vulnerabilities uh, had the possibility to get code execution, and it looks like someone had figured out how to do that because Mozilla reported that they were seeing reports uh, of these both being exploited in the wild. Uh, so they have been fixed for Firefox. Uh, an update for OpenJDK as well. 15 CVEs were rolled into this. This updates OpenJDK to the latest uh, upstream point releases, which is 17.0.2 and 11.0.14 across uh, the staple Ubuntu releases. Thanks to Matthias Close from the Ubuntu Foundations team for preparing these. Uh, always muchly appreciated. Uh, we had an update for uh, glibc, the GNU C library uh, in uh, Ubuntu 16.04 ESM. Uh, three different CVs rolled into this. These are a subset of some that I talked about back in last week's episode. Uh, an update for Redis, uh, one CV here uh, for Ubuntu releases 20.04 long-term support and 21.10. Uh, this vulnerability kind of relied on some functionality that uh, was only present on these more recent Redis releases. Effectively, uh, essentially, Redis contains uh, a backend to script it through uh, the Lua language. So it links against the system liblua to do that, and it implements kind of a sandbox to try to make sure that uh, if you are scripting Redis, you can't kind of execute arbitrary code on the host. So upstream ship a vended copy of Lua in the upstream Redis source code. However, uh, this goes against uh, Ubuntu and Debian packaging guidelines where we obviously want to try to use the system installed uh, liblua. And that's a good thing because it means that if there is a vulnerability in Lua itself, we just patch liblua. And then all the applications that want to use Lua, they uh, will be linking against that. And so then they are automatically uh, fixed as a result. Whereas if we have all these different copies of something like Lua being a embedded scripting language, you know, lots of packages do contain their own uh, local copies of that. But 
we usually don't compile those. Uh, so that means, yeah, we don't have to patch it in one place, which is a good thing. But it does then mean that all those things share that same functionality. And in the case of uh, Redis, it uh, has the, uh, a couple other Lua libraries that it then tries to use to make sure that Redis uses the ones that are installed in the system. There's a small little shim kind of patch within uh, Redis as packaged in Debian and Ubuntu that makes it kind of redirect to those other libraries. Now, unfortunately, uh, the code that did this uh, left this global variable uh, package uninitialized. That then meant that an attacker who could execute uh, Lua scripts in Redis had the ability to then initialize that effectively by loading uh, the full liblua unsandboxed and then be able to execute arbitrary Lua code as a result and then do things like you know, execute arbitrary commands on the host directly. Uh, and so yeah, this was a bug that was specific to Ubuntu and Debian. This has now been fixed. However, it uh, should probably be noted that I guess there are other ways to get Redis um, to execute arbitrary Lua code still. And it looks like upstream don't really consider the existing sandbox as a security boundary. They more consider it as kind of like a safety boundary to make sure that people don't do uh, you know silly things and you know accidentally mess up their system as a result. So uh, I recommend that you only give trusted users access to the eval command in Redis to make sure that they can't yet get arbitrary code execution on your host as a result through Redis. So yeah, that has been fixed. Uh, after that, I guess the big updates for the week were for the Linux kernel. And as always, thanks to Tadeo Cascado from the kernel team for coordinating uh, all the work on these. Uh, he acts as like kind of a go-between between the security team and the kernel team, uh, managing all the different CVs that need to be fixed, the various patches for those, and making sure that you know the right kernels get patched uh, and the like. So yeah, thanks as always for uh, helping us with these. So the first of these, uh, I guess, is one of the more higher profile vulnerabilities that we've seen in the kernel for a while. Uh, it was termed a dirty pipe, and that uh, name, I guess, may remind you of the dirty cow uh, vulnerability that was, I think, 2016 now, uh, quite a while ago. But um, And a similar kind of vulnerability to that, but actually easier to exploit in this case. Uh, it was a mishandling of the page cache within the kernel and that then meant that a malicious process that could abuse both the pipe and the splice system calls could effectively get the kernel to overwrite the content of arbitrary files even if the user themselves obviously had no right permissions to that. And they could even do that on uh, immutable or read-only file systems because effectively they're modifying uh, the file within the page cache within the kernel. You know, They're not modifying it on, say, the disk itself, uh, but that then means that any time you know, something else goes to read that same file, they will read out that same that contents that they've been able to overwrite and it was actually a really simple error due to the failure to initialize uh, these flag elements within the pipe buffer uh, structure within the kernel uh, that would get uh, created when handling pipe data so the fix was just literally two lines to set that to zero in a couple of different places uh, so yeah a very simple fix for uh, I guess quite uh, a uh, pernicious flaw uh, this goes all the way back to the 4.9 kernel. However, it's only really exploitable since uh, the 5.8 kernel where a bunch of that code was refactored to make this code be able to be uh, reached easier. So what that means is that we have patched it for our kernels uh, after 5.8, which is the 5.13 kernel series that is used for Ubuntu 21.10 and also as the hardware enablement kernel for 20.04 long-term support now. Uh, we will though be doing um, some, or well, the kernel team will be patching this for the older kernels like our 5.4 kernel that's used for Ubuntu 24 long-term support as the uh, general availability kernel there. So that will be patched in a future um, cycle as an additional hardening measure, even though we don't believe that actually is exploitable on those releases. Uh, and after that, uh, I guess and the other big thing for the kernel this week was the latest set of um, microarchitectural hardware flaws were fixed. 
these are in the same vein as the original Spectre floors, which I had to look this up. It's actually all the way back from January 2018. So that's over four years ago now uh, that we've been dealing with these sorts of issues. And yeah, it looks like they just keep coming and coming. Um, researchers keep finding new ways to effectively uh, be able to exploit these uh, micro-architectural micro kind of timing channels uh, to be able to leak information. Uh, these ones are a set of vulnerabilities that affected both Intel and ARM processors and yeah, it can allow an unprivileged user to leak, uh, essentially read memory from the kernel or other applications. Uh, like a lot of these things, it requires uh, like a gadget to be able to be run and that's in this case a piece of code in the kernel that kind of primes these micro-architectural micro um, buffers and the like to you know, influence their behavior so that they will speculatively execute the code they want. The only way at the moment, uh, the only way known to get those into the kernel is to inject one through uh, BPF. And so as a result, one of the additional hardening measures that we're taking uh, as part of this update is to disable uh, the loading of BPF code from unprivileged users. And so this is something that has traditionally been allowed uh, up until uh, the more recent kernel versions. It was, you know, an, it, BPF has always been intended to be safe for unprivileged users to use, but due to a combination of flaws in the BPF verifier itself, and uh, the ability in this case, say, to be able to inject code to then influence the behavior of the kernel, uh, we can see that it really isn't safe to allow unprivileged users to use that. And so the upstream kernel, they've had this disabled now for unprivileged users for a bit. Uh, it's disabled on the more recent Ubuntu releases like uh, 2110, Impish Injury, and then currently in development 2204, um, Jammy Jellyfish, that will be out come the end of April. And so then we've now um, brought this fix back to our older Ubuntu releases like 18 of four long-term support and 20 of four long-term support. So yeah, unprivileged users are now not able to load BPF code on those releases as well. And I've got uh, a short link to uh, a, um, a topic that I created on discourse.ubuntu.com to explain more about that if you want to know more details. Okay, and yeah, so along with that, we also had kernel updates for uh, the other releases. I've got links to those in the show notes if you want to know more, but they are the same set of vulnerabilities as well as the ones I've just talked about. Okay, so that takes us to the end of the week in security updates. So as I mentioned at the start, the other thing that we are bringing you this week is the first of a three-part series on uh, hardening of Ubuntu systems. So this is uh, some content that was developed by Camilla. Thank you, Camilla, for all your hard work on this. Uh, it's really awesome stuff. Uh, in response to a thread that was created on discourse.ubuntu.com by uh, one of our listeners, where they wanted some basic security advice for running your own server. And so I won't steal Camilla's thunder, but yeah, as I say, this is the first of a three-part series. This first, um, part one is focusing on hardening at install time. The second part that we'll bring you next week is hardening that you can take post-install. And the third part is looking at then even additional measures that you can apply on top of that once your machine is deployed and some kind of additional things that you can install if you want to kind of add uh, to your security posture. All right, so yeah, take it away, Camilla. Hello, listener. Welcome to another episode of the Ubuntu Security Podcast, where I, Camila, will be talking to you all more about one subject or another involving the Ubuntu Linux distribution and cybersecurity in general. Today's episode is a response to a request. A request from someone that wants to learn more about how it is possible to create an Ubuntu system which will be running some type of service in a secure manner. After all, we do live in times where threats that were only physical have migrated to the digital world as well. So just having a server set up with all ports open and no access control set is no longer an option for those that wish to use the almighty internet to provide some type of service. Heck, the concern should exist even if you don't wish to have an internet-facing server, but simply if you own a computer or a smartphone 
or a smart TV, or a car, or anything really. We are all connected by our Wi-Fi's, whether we want it or not. So taking care of our own digital perimeter has become something essential and something that we all should be applying to not get spammed or scammed in the days of today. So, since I do love me some lists, let's talk about, in a chronological list format, what measures you can apply to your Ubuntu operating system and what tools can you use in the same operating system to make it safer, harden against the cold and harsh wave of zeros and ones that might be traveling out there through fiber optic cables just waiting to hack into your system. Let's start with the basics and talk about what can be done with the tools that you already have when you have an Ubuntu Linux coming fresh out of the bootable USB stick you use to format your computer. Actually, if we are indeed doing this, let's do it for real. We will go back even further and talk about the basics that can be done not only after a fresh install, but also while you're installing your system. Let's get prepared for the Ubuntu Big Bang and talk about what needs to happen before our binary universe can start to exist and securely function inside our CPUs and hard drives. During an Ubuntu install, you will make a few choices, such as whether or not you want to encrypt data in your disk. If you are not the one installing your own system and you have an already running basic Ubuntu system in a cloud service platform, for example, this might not be something possible for you. However, if you do have the chance to apply this, it is a hardening measure that can be used to protect all data being saved in your hard drive. Of course, we need to consider that not all situations might fit well with this, as, for example, a server that forces the system to reboot frequently would require a password every time at system startup, something that one might not want to do or be available to do every single time, specifically considering a situation where a completely automated system is the main goal to be achieved here. It is also important to consider that encrypting your hard drive might affect general file I.O. performance, input and output performance, since data being read from the disk needs to be decrypted every time before being presented to the user or to the system for further processing. And data that will be written to the system needs to be encrypted before it is sent permanently to the hard drive. However, if none of those cases concerns you at all, the question here might be, why not encrypt your hard drive? If your hardware allows it, making the process fast, it might even be worth it despite the delay you can have due to the necessary encryption and decryption operations being performed. Either way, your data can be protected from those that might want to access it without authorization. Do not kid yourself by thinking that hackers will always stay behind a screen, as there are the very bold who might just think that by stealing your hard drive, they will get what they need. Without a password, though, hackers can connect the disk to whatever computer they like, but the data will remain encoded and unreadable. Remember, though, full disk encryption will not protect data in transit, also known as data you sent through the wires or through the air via the World Wide Web to other devices around the world. Disk encryption, as the name suggests, is local to the disk which is associated to your own device. Oh. Also, do be aware that the password that is used to encrypt a disk cannot be lost, or else you might be your own worst enemy and lose your data, which becomes nearly impossible to crack ciphertext. Still talking about disk configurations during the installation process, do consider creating a swap partition when setting up your system. The swap partition is essentially used by the Ubuntu system as if it were RAM. 
Therefore, if your RAM is filled up completely, the swap partition, which is actually a part of the hard drive, will be used rather than the RAM memory space to perform operations necessary. A swap partition can also be used to make more RAM space available during a certain point in processing time, set space being provided for data that is more relevant or is being used more frequently. Data that is being less used, less referenced, can therefore be moved to swap space instead of being left in the ever-busy, constantly used RAM. The swap will act as an extension of your RAM, but do note it is not as efficient as RAM since it is actually your hard drive pretending to be something that it's not, a volatile memory device. Setting up a swap partition, however, can be very useful to increase performance in your server. As previously mentioned, Swap space can be used to store data that is not all that frequently accessed, opening up space in RAM for more regularly accessed information. Since data in the swap is not being used constantly, the delay you would have when performing I.O. operations on it becomes less of an issue, and you essentially gain more RAM space to process whatever your server needs to process. And, you know, even if people do forget it sometimes, remembering about it only when they suffer a massive denial-of-service attack, availability is one of the three pillars of cybersecurity, so preparing for that in order to guarantee a system with better performance is valuable. Another big advantage of having swap lies on the fact that you, as a system administrator, might have more time to react to possible memory issues when your server is facing them. When you run out of memory and you don't have swap, you risk having your system suddenly crash and not only losing all data that was in RAM, but having your service be out of reach for whoever knows how long. You can also have OOM killer, out of memory killer, go and kill your most important process because you are running out of memory. And it doesn't even have the courtesy of asking you if you're okay with it. Just root. If you set up your swap space to at least the size of your largest process though, and you monitor your system, you are able to detect possible issues by analyzing swap space usage, and then you can most likely avoid many undesired service and system crashes. However, do not forget, setting swap can boost your system performance as it can hinder it if you don't implement things correctly. Your main volatile memory source should be your RAM, and the swap partition will not be a substitute for it. Therefore, if you have little RAM and over-encumber your system, you won't make it any faster by using swap, as the hard drive will be used to process that overflowing amount of data that should be processed primarily by your RAM. The idea here is to use swap as a complementary performance measure to your appropriate RAM-sized system. If using swap memory, don't forget to configure how this extra memory space will be used together with your RAM, by setting up the swappiness metric, for example, which will tell the kernel how aggressively it will swap memory pages in the system when necessary. Once again, setting too much of a high value might make your system inefficient as you start making your kernel believe that the hard drive is actually RAM, the perfect disguise, but setting a low value might also not give you the best performance possible. Each case will be its own, so know your system and your needs and act accordingly. Our install happens on our disk, so unfortunately I must tell you that once again we will be checking out disk settings we can consider when creating our hardened Ubuntu server. Cheers to our disks!
Installing all of the system in one single partition tends to be a lot easier and a lot faster. However, we're not looking for easy here, we're looking for secure. So let's get out of the one single partition and out of our comfort zones and possibly separate our system directories into different partitions. Having boot in a separate partition is useful to avoid not being able to log into a system after the current kernel image has run across issues. The backup kernel images will be available and you might be able to do a quicker recovery that won't require connecting an external device in or removing your own in order to fix what has been broken in the operating system. In case you encrypt your root partition, you will need to perform this regardless or else your OS won't boot. Encrypted code might be cool looking, but it's not exactly functional considering a situation where you need to know what are the basic instructions that will allow you to get the operating system up and running. Encrypting boot together with root would be the same as hearing the ready, set, go at a car race and staying stuck in place because you just remembered you put a boot in your wheel. The locked boot is stopping you from moving the car forward and getting it where you need it to be. And, considering boot outside of the analogy, it's stopping you from getting your computer to execute your operating system because it's encrypted. Therefore, if you encrypt your hard drive, as previously suggested, you already get to escape from the old boring one partition scheme. That being said, with this very convenient analogy, let's get back to it and discuss the other partitioning options you might have and that you can apply to your system in order to make it more efficient and more secure. Options which include, for example, putting temp in a separate partition. This is most likely a good call, especially considering that world writable temp is a common target for attackers. Servers that might use temp for storage of, as the name suggests, temporary files could cause a self-denial of service in case this directory is filled up with various large files. If the directory is in a different partition, however, only that specific partition will fill up and not the entire system storage instead. Other processes using other directories in your system are unaffected and only the process filling up temp is terminated. It is also a lot easier to manage a filled up temp partition than it is the entire system. Plus, different permissions can be set for this specific partition later on, but we will discuss this soon enough, albeit not now. Separating the home and the var directories from the rest of the system also shares these advantages. Leaving these directories in their own separate drawers inside the closet that is our hard drive might be an interesting choice in order to avoid necessary space to be taken up by a file that might not be essential for the workings of the server. The home directory will contain user files, and we don't trust users and the var directory might get filled up completely with a huge amount of logs, for example. Filling up the logs might be an attack of choice made by some hacker out there, but if you created a separate partition, you were prepared for it. Having smaller partitions also makes for faster file searches in the system, which might be a valid performance boost for your IT infrastructure. If you plan to share resources through the network, have these resources be connected to a directory mounted in a separate partition, as you can have more permissive access control rules in the shared partition, but keep the rigorous ones in all others that might contain sensitive information, which is in itself another advantage. Different partitions, different permissions during mount time. However, we will go into more detail about this later on, as I already mentioned.
The point here is, separate partitions are separate file systems, and therefore, the operating system will not behave in the same way as it would if all data were to be stored under a single partition, a single file system. All of that being said, it will require more management than a system that only has one partition, and space usage might not be the most efficient when you establish limits to each directory. However, if it is feasible for your needs, it might be a good way to avoid some issues. Security issues. Up next, I say this every time and I will never get tired of saying it. Strong passwords, people. Strong passwords. Whenever creating the first user for your Ubuntu system, which will happen during the install process, do not use your birthday as your password or your dog's name or any six-letter word followed by the digits that are the current year. Easy to remember, easy to hack. The first step to avoid being hacked is not wanting to be hacked. And forgive you me if I am being too blunt, but setting up lazy passwords and not expecting it to be a problem is like eating rotten food and expecting not to get sick. You can wish all you want, but the outcome will not be positive for you, my friend, and to your closest loved ones involved. So... Strong passwords, please, and non-expired food. Our system is installed. Big bang. Our Ubuntu operating system universe now exists after we set everything up so that it looks just right for our security needs. All is not done, however, since after the big bang, the galaxy, and more specifically Earth, had to go through a lot of steps before it was ready to host life, which is our main goal here host life in the form of executable network service providing code. We now have galaxies, stars, planets, and all necessary to maybe create life in the future. But first things first, we need our huge ball of fire to be tweaked a little bit since life as we know it will not be born in such an unsafe or might I say insecure environment. Let's then make it secure so that we can start thinking about giving it some life or in our case, installing some software, developing customized code, setting up frameworks, all that good stuff that makes developers go crazy with excitement. I will, however, keep you on your toes and continue talking more about this subject in another episode only. So stay tuned to the podcast to continue on this Ubuntu hardening journey with me. And while you wait for what is to come, feel free to share your thoughts in any of our social media platforms, as your opinion is always welcome. I await your return to the podcast in the following weeks so that we can once again share information. But for now, I bid you all farewell and until next time. Bye. And thanks as always for that, Camilla. And I can't wait to hear from you again next week on part two of that. All right. So that takes us to the end of this week's episode. As usual, if you want to get in contact with the team, you can email us at securityubuntu.com. We are also in the Ubuntu security channel on the libera.chat.irc network. Now, you can create your own topic on discourse.ubuntu.com if you'd like to uh, talk to us about anything security-related there or something you want to hear on the podcast or even any feedback you may have. Uh, Please let us know. Or finally, we are on Twitter at Ubuntu underscore sec as well. So thanks, everyone, for listening again for another week. I'll be back again with you all next week. Until then, remember, keep calm because we've got your back and I'll speak to you soon. Bye.